Hello, everyone. Welcome to Sundays with Saima. This podcast is made for aspiring otolaryngologists to learn from trainees and attendings in the field. I'm your host, Saima Wase, fourth year medical student at Northeast Ohio Medical University. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Jordan Kai Simmons, PGY1 at Cedar Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles. He earned his medical degree from the University of Kansas Medical Center. Dr. Simmons, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm excited to have you here. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm super excited as well. Absolutely. So to start out, can you tell us a little bit about your path to otolaryngology? Yeah, sure. So um, actually, the first doctor that I ever shadowed was an otolaryngologist. Um, actually, let me be more let me be more specific. The first physician that I shadowed in the operating room was an otolaryngologist. So, um, you know, I had an early exposure. This was sometime during my undergraduate year. I think I was like maybe a, a sophomore or a junior. But, you know, at that point in time, you know, just like every other pre-med student, I was really gung-ho about getting into medicine, but, you know, I wasn't the most quality student. You know, I, I did a lot of dumb stuff and, and wasted a lot of time. So I ended up taking several years off. So um, between undergrad and medical school, I was off for about three years. And during that time, you know, I just, I worked and I volunteered and I tried to do a lot of different things to help build my application for medical school. And it was during that time that I really did a deep dive into, you know, myself, my personal interests and what I really wanted to get out of medical school. So that by the time I started, you know, I had a great idea of exactly what I wanted to pursue. So, you know, fast forward to the first year of medical school, I had narrowed it down to like my top three specialties. And on that list was, uh, was otolaryngology plastic surgery and ophthalmology. And the way I made that decision was basically, I knew I wanted to do surgery. Um, that was a given. Like I, I, I couldn't imagine myself just practicing general medicine and nothing against them, but you know, just for my personality and my personal interests, mm-hmm. it had to be surgery. I knew I didn't want to do general surgery just because I'm not too keen on the bowel or abdominal surgery or like <laughs> you know, dependent decubitus ulcers, like, you know, I'll, I'll let them handle that. I'll take the, um, you know, the upper respiratory secretions any day over, over any bowel stuff. So that ruled that out for me. Same thing with like urology. And then I just continue to understand more of my own personal interests and my priorities. And that helps me, you know, narrow it down to otolaryngology. So, you know, even by the, I think midway through my first year, I had, I had kind of committed to that at least preliminarily, I just mm-hmm. knew that I needed to set a direction and, you know, kind of start building my application, even as a first year medical student, just because, you know, the whole reason you're in medical school is to eventually apply to residency. Right. So, you know, let's start stacking the chips as, as high as I can, you know, even if it might not be the right thing, mm-hmm. let's just start getting some forward momentum and then ultimately ended up working out. And that's, that's where uh, I landed. So. Yeah, that's a great story, especially that it that you spent three years to really kind of build yourself up to that moment and be ready to be able to kind of dedicate yourself completely from the first year of medical school. So that's a really interesting path that you took. Yeah, and um, trust me, I I needed all three of those years because <laughs> you know I 
Uh, I don't know how some people go straight from undergrad to medical school. Me personally, I had a little bit of growing up to do. And so, you know, those three years were instrumental in, in my success. Right, right. And when you matched in residency, it was back at your home. What does it mean to you to be able to come back and practice here? It's everything. Like, I, I don't know when my streak of luck is going to run out, but like, I've been really getting a lot of pretty, pretty good wins lately. So I'm, I'm super happy about that. You know, I was able to have a grad party uh, in central California, which is like kind of where a lot of my family is, is focused. And so I had a lot of family there, people I haven't seen since I was like a baby, you know, oh, and you could get the proverbial, yeah. I haven't seen you since you were, you know, this big. And I'm just like, dang, like, this is crazy. So just having the access to my family, you know, a familiar environment and just like such a beautiful city, like Los Angeles, I couldn't imagine being somewhere where I'm, I'm, I'm happier. So that's, that's been, that's been awesome. Yeah, that's great. And how did you use your signaling process that was kind of new last year to kind of optimize your chances of matching somewhere uh, close to your hometown? You know what? Um, signaling was just, was one component of it. Okay. But um, as far as signaling goes, I, I fully committed, right? I knew I wanted to be back here in my home state. Um, having done both undergrad and medical school in the Midwest and being essentially a Midwest resident, I knew the, you know, the, the odds were a little bit against me just because, especially in a field like otolaryngology, where it's, it's pretty small and, and, and people, everybody knows everybody, there tends to be somewhat of a regional bias. So when it came to signaling, I definitely front-loaded the signals to California schools. I, I essentially signaled all California schools because I knew I wanted to to be out here and I was ready to commit to that. Mm -hmm. um, considering that signals were brand new last year, the first year that they rolled it out, you know, it, it's really hard to look at historical strategy because there is none. Right. So my strategy was just to, you know, kind of throw the kitchen sink at this particular goal. And, um, you know, it ended up working out in my favor. So I guess like when it came to who I sent those signals to, it was mostly just a matter of, um, you know, the pro programs that I liked. I spent a ton of time looking at different programs, looking at um, their curriculum, their research infrastructure, uh, even the location, because I think that, you know, plays a big role in, you know, personal wellness. So you're going to be happy in this place. Mm -hmm. and so that, that was essentially my strategy was just picking institutions that I liked and, um, I didn't think too much about the like the, like the ranking, so to speak, of the right. institution, just because I figure that in otolaryngology, you're going to get fantastic training anywhere. You know, every applicant is an all-star, so you can imagine that every physician that's going to be training you, regardless of institution, is also an amazing person. So in, in looking at different programs, you'll see that the faculty at any given program is you know, just decorated with all kinds of credentials. So that was, that was really how I approached it. Yeah, that's great to hear from someone who's just been through the process. Do you think there are other strategies in terms of going for top tier schools or lower tier schools? And did you see it work for anyone else? You know, um, 
It's hard to say, right? I think that when it comes to the progression of application season, right? You put in your signals and then the next step is to get an interview. I'm not sure that the signals were super helpful in getting the initial interview, but I think that the signals could have been helpful when it came to programs deciding their rank list, if that makes sense. Okay. So when it comes to signaling top tier schools versus lower tier schools and having like, you know, your reach programs versus your safety net programs. Um, I think that's one way to go about it, but I think more importantly than that, it's important to just like, number one, understand your risk tolerance because, um, you know, if you're, if you're just going to go for those top tier institutions, do you think that you have the credentials? Do you think that you have the, you know, um, just the confidence to be in those rooms because it could be a little bit intimidating. So, you know, looking from both sides, I can see the utility and, you know, Mm -hmm. applying for top tier schools and then having some safety net schools. I think that's a great strategy, but again, since signals are so new, I don't think that there's enough data to really like say what works versus what doesn't. Right. Right. Well, we appreciate all the advice we can get here. Yeah. Um, (laughs) You mentioned the interviews and that and signals helping out in that. Um, You were the first class to go through virtual interviews also. So that was another unprecedented part of your application season. Can you comment on what the best way to present yourself virtually is? Yeah, yeah. I have spent a ton of time thinking about this, probably more than I should have. But um, I think it's definitely helpful to be more overprepared versus less prepared. So how to present yourself on video, I think that nobody will blame you for being professional and poised and trying to like come off as a polished individual. But sometimes that could be at the expense of downplaying your personality. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I think that you have to find some type of balance that you're comfortable with. You definitely want to present yourself as professional. That goes without saying. In an industry like this, where people are highly respected, highly trained, highly educated, you want to come off as, you know, meaning business. And that can look like just having, you know, your suit pressed, your tie tied up tight for a guy, um, you know, for, for women, having your outfit, having your makeup, whatever, whatever. Um, but you want, you want to, you want to present yourself in the most professional way possible. And to me, that means attention to detail, right? So mm-hmm. how's your outfit? What is your camera position? What does your background look like? Is it messy? Is it thoughtful? How's your lighting? Does your camera look good? Or are you like in front of a window? And so like you're being super washed out and now your video is just a dark shadow. So, you know, I, I think the way I like to think of it is try to simulate a natural environment as much as possible. So we kind of can drop the facade of having to look at each other through video. Right. Right. So if you can, if you can have good lighting that looks natural, if you can have a nice background that looks professional, if you look professional, if your camera's at eye level, so it looks like, you know, I'm kind of looking at you, if I'm looking into the camera, so we're, you know, kind of making a pseudo eye contact, I think all these different things, even if on the subconscious level are, are helpful. Yeah, definitely. Um, that setup is really helpful to learn about. And um, do you have any specific tips about like cameras or backgrounds about how to kind of best construct those? Yes. Yes, I do. So um, 
from from a systematic standpoint, uh, if we start with the camera, I think having the camera at eye level is is a big deal, right? Not too low, so you're kind of like looking down into the camera, not too high, so you're kind of looking up into the camera. Mm. But just eye level, that is what simulates most natural interaction, right? If I'm sitting across uh, from a table from you, more than likely we're you know kind of at similar eye levels, maybe not exact, but you know this is something that is. Um, most closely simulating a natural interaction. Right. I think framing is super important. How you frame the camera around your body. Okay. Um, what I tried to aim for as a rule of thumb was like maybe having the top of my head less than two centimeters from the the edge of the screen. Okay. So right now, you, you know, you know, just where the edge of the screen is to the top of your head, less than two centimeters. Huh. Okay. Um, the bottom border of your camera uh, for males, like nipple line for women. You know, maybe one to two inches below the axillary line. Okay. Uh, just to kind of like put your body so you so when you're talking, you can like do hand gestures, people can see you. You okay. know, you don't have too much space above your head. So you kind of look, you know, maybe short and stumpy. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So yeah. just like again, the like the little details I think makes a lot of sense. Um, lighting, I think that you need to have great lighting. If you don't have a you know desk situation or a desk setup where the back of your computer screen or the back of your webcam. Um, is facing a window so the natural light can just kind of pour on mm-hmm. your face, then you need to get some artificial lighting. I would recommend people, you know, get like one diffuse sort of source of lighting, like a soft box. You can get this on Amazon for like 30 bucks. Okay. And then maybe even a ring light. But I think if you position your lights obliquely so that they can kind of shine on you from a 45 degree angle, that's going to mm-hmm. eliminate a lot of shadows on your face. Again, this is going to create like a really natural look. So, um, or if you have like a, a window that doesn't have direct sunlight, mm-hmm. kind of has like a diffuse source of light, or even if it's like an overcast day, that's mm-hmm. going to create the best lighting, most natural lighting situation. That's going to simulate, you know, a real in-person interaction. And, um, you know, these, and these are just like some, some tips for video. I have like a lot more stuff that I could talk about. Um, you know, and I actually made a, uh, I, I made a YouTube video just like specifically for okay. these questions that. And we you know we could talk more about that later, but you know, just like the little details that I think can go a long way in a virtual interview situation. Yeah, this is absolutely fantastic to learn about. Uh, these pro tips will not go unappreciated. I can guarantee that. Okay, good. Yeah. Like I said, I spent I spent probably way too much time thinking about this, but I think you know, in the long run, it, it paid off. No, definitely, and I think that sharing that information is going to be very useful. So now that you've started your intern year, um, what did you learn about otolaryngology as an intern that you didn't know as a medical student? The, the practice specifically, um, you know, I, the, the scope of practice, I didn't learn too much more. I kind of had a great grasp on the scope of the practice, mm-hmm. but nothing can simulate whether you're reading a book or watching a video or dissecting a cadaver nothing can kind of simulate that experience of being the primary surgeon when you have the instruments in your hand and you're cutting or whether you have the the scope in your hand and you're you know performing like a maxillary antrostomy you can't really duplicate that experience with any type of simulation so you know you're learning that manual dexterity that you don't really have the opportunity to learn as a medical student perhaps some individuals do i know i didn't the most that i did it as a medical student was you know, close some wounds with very close supervision. But once you're at the intern level and you are trusted and there are higher expectations of you, 
then that's when it starts getting real. So like the, the manual dexterity is like a, a huge new component of the mm -hmm. practice that, you know, you learn as an intern kind of more, or, or I guess less tangible knowledge is the workflow of the hospital. That was a mm -hmm. huge thing for me. So as a medical student, the expectations are low enough such that you don't really have to think about, you know, the progression of inpatient medicine. Right. But once you get to the level of an intern and you're responsible for patients, putting in orders, following up on orders, following up on, you know, different specialties who may be consulted um, if you're the primary team or if you're not the primary team. So just like the workflow and the, the, the schematics of inpatient medicine was a whole new thing that I learned that I didn't have too much experience with as a medical student. And it, it took some getting used to, right. but at this point, I feel like I've gotten a good grasp on it. That's great to know that there's still so much more to learn. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I think every year of otolaryngology residency training comes with so much more responsibility and mm -hmm. new training, which is really interesting and exciting about the field, honestly. So, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, another thing is like the depth of information that you're required to know. A lot of things seem super straightforward, especially if you are a medical student and you're just shadowing and attending, you know, you'll see them perform these movements. And then, you know, if you see them enough times, you're just like, you know, that doesn't look too hard. Or if you are, you know, lucky enough to be able to scope a patient with a flexible laryngoscope, um, you know, you can kind of get those, you know, those, those, those movements down pretty easily uh, in a relatively short amount of time. But knowing the anatomy, knowing the relationships between nerves and blood vessels and, and certain tissue structures, all that contributes to a better understanding of your patient and the things that you're doing. And so, you know, you just have this, you just have such a superficial understanding sometimes as a medical student. I, I did. And even as an intern, I still have somewhat of a superficial understanding. You know, I still have um, the better part of five years to learn all of these things. So, um, you know, I definitely look forward to all the learning opportunities and just having more of a well-rounded perspective when it comes to uh, the head and neck anatomy of my patients. Right. And that's, that's the fun part about otolaryngology is just kind of starting over with your medical knowledge and digging in almost like another round of medical school. Yeah, yeah, definitely. One of the things that I, um, you know, I'll, and I'll, I'll be candid about it. I, I kind of struggled with this initially. When you're a fourth year medical student, like you have, you have climbed to the top of the mountain, right? Mm -hmm. Especially when you're done with interview season and you might've finished your last rotation and now you have just, you know, unobstructed time before graduation. You feel good about yourself. You feel like, you know, you kind of had conquered that mountain. Come intern year, you're way back at the bottom. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, you kind of have to have this, um, this attitude adjustment, so to right. speak. Um, you know, there's a lot of times where, where I train, we have a lot of PAs in our clinic, physicians assistants, and they know way more than I do about the workflow, um, how physicians like their consult consults to be handled or like what instruments to use in the operating room. And so I find a lot of the time I'm being, I feel like my hand is being held and I feel like I'm being, you know, like spoken down to, and I'll be thinking to myself in the back of my mind, like, like, I know this, like, you don't have to be telling me this, mm -hmm. but I find it very, very important to be teachable. Right. And even though your ego might be saying like, I freaking know this already, like, let's move on. You don't have to tell me this. You, you better shut up and listen. Mm -hmm. You better just like, stop, 
get rid of that, you know, that ego, that emotion right. and listen, because somebody who is the person who's talking to you probably knows more than you do. Mm-hmm. And they've been there longer than you do. And regardless of if you have the MD behind your name or not, there's something to be learned, you know, from everybody who's, who's been there and they're teaching you just so they can help you. Yeah. You know what I mean? So um, that's, that was like an unanticipated part of intern year um, mm-hmm. that I kind of, I had to, I had to, you know, figure out uh, on the fly. Yeah. It's great to be able to navigate those situations as they come along. Yeah. Do you have any other advice to medical students applying or considering otolaryngology? Yeah, I I think a big thing is just just believe in yourself. You know, we all know how competitive this field is. And there's a level of doubt that creeps into all of our minds. You know, I don't care if you are, you know, like 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 a top tier applicant with like some super good scores and like a thousand research papers and your first author on a hundred of them, you know, there's, there's doubt that creeps into everybody's mind. So my biggest advice is just believe in yourself, commit and Mm -hmm. understand that, you know, through hard work and perseverance, if you want it bad enough, you will get it. And that's my personal guarantee. You know, I, I run into a lot of students who talk about, um, you know, I don't know if I want to apply here because like, what if I'm not good enough? Maybe I'll just apply, you know, in this specialty over here. Mm -hmm. Perfectly fine. But is that really what you want? Is that what you're, is that what you're going for? Is that what's going to satisfy you? Or are you compromising because, you know, there's that level of doubt that you're letting speak louder than, you know, what you believe that you want, what you believe that you deserve. So I would just encourage all students applying into this specialty know yourself, know your application, be proud of what you've accomplished and, you know, be able to sell that come interview day. Cause if this is what you're passionate about, this is what you want to do. Mm-hmm. You know, don't let some objective marks that you think determine your value, uh, hold you back, you know, go for what you want. Even if it takes more than one try, you can, you can make it happen. Dr. Simmons, thank you so much for that inspirational, um, advice that you're giving to us. Any final thoughts? I think that about sums it up for me. I've probably talked too much, to be honest. No, no, it was great. Thank you so much. And thank you to the listeners for this Sunday's episode of Sundays with Saima. Be sure to follow Dr. Kai Simmons on YouTube at Simmons. And while you're at it, follow this podcast on Instagram and Twitter at SundaysWSIMA for updates and other info relevant to medical students. See you next Sunday.